Candyland follows Remy, a seemingly naive and devout young woman who finds herself cast out from her religious cult. With no place to turn, she immerses herself in the underground world of truck stop sex workers. But when bodies start turning up, Remy and her new family must come together to face the murderer in their midst. Watch what Dread Central is calling one of the most surprising films of the year, now on digital and video on demand. And this movie goes for it. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions is none other than producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you? I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing very well, Mick. I uh, actually, I had a, I had a movie come out last week. I know uh, it's playing uh, in North Hollywood as we speak. That's right. One of the few theatrical screenings that it does, that it does have. Uh, the Lemley NoHo 7 proudly right. playing the locksmith, the locksmith co-written by Joe Russo. Yes, one of one of many writers. Uh so Proud of you, my boy. Uh thank you. Thank you. Um you know, I I uh, it was fun though. I got to go to they had a they had a premiere and uh I had to walk the red carpet which was strange. How do you deal with walking the red carpet, Mick? <laughs> well, the same as you did, probably, by being uh, obscured by the uh, on-camera personalities. <laughs> I feel like I like don't know what to do with my hands. Uh, <laughs> That's what pockets were made for. That's true. I, I think there is a good shot of me with my hands in my pockets. So... Uh, <laughs> It was it was uh, it was it was a nice night. They threw a they threw a nice party, and uh, but uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, how are you? What's going on? What's going on with you? Well, a lot going on. You know, it's more in the writing world. I, I've just started a new piece of fiction. This uh, this pilot that uh, that I'd worked on looks to be gaining traction with the attachment of a major television star. Um, nice. the, uh, pilot that Clive and I wrote is probably not going to take place at its original home, but there are a couple of other places that are asking about it. So we will see, but it's all very, very active, all very exciting. And however it works out, I'm a very happy creator. I, I am glad to hear it. There's, there's nothing better than, uh, you know, being at home and, and plugging away through your imagination, that's for sure. Um, that's really great. But, but before we of, dig in, yeah. before we dig in, I'd really like to ask our audience that if they're enjoying it, to help spread the word by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their casts, because it really does help us reach a wider audience. And it's it's good for the show, helps us get the best guests possible. And it's just even more fun. Plus, we love seeing five-star reviews. <laughs> Be honest, but honestly, believe in your five-star reviews. <laughs> or, you know, just give them to them anyway. Anyway, all right. Uh, shall we do some questions, Mr. Garris? That is why we're here after all. So, all right. Joe Russo, ask me anything. Scott wants to know, gun to head. If you had to do a movie with Freddie, Jason, or Michael, which would you pick? And what would you do to differentiate yourself from the previous franchise entries? Kill them off. 
you know, it would be gun to head because I can't imagine, first of all, being asked to do another sequel to one of these horror franchises. But secondly, the most imaginative of them or potentially imaginative is the Freddy franchise. Right. <clears throat> they are much more cinematically diverse. Um, they're filled with uh, Dadaist imagery, uh, really creative scenes and webs rather than just creative kills. They, they weave a tapestry that is cinematically interesting. <clears throat> yeah, you've um, always kind of been, uh, been much more pro on the Freddy tracks. We've, we've had this question several times and I think that's why that's why the gun to head but yeah uh... <laughs> well, at least a question like it you know yes it would not be a choice of mine it's highly unlikely anybody is going to come to me and ask me to do one of those but you know what they tried to do with uh Halloween with Halloween yeah. ends bring in a, another central character I don't know if that was a good move or a bad move it wasn't my favorite part of the movie um but at least but at it was least, something different you yeah. know yeah, but I jokingly say killing off the lead, the sure. lead villain, but that happens all the time. And then they come back in the next sure. franchise. Well, that, that iteration of Michael is, is surely not coming back from the last movie, but uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, well, they, killed, they killed him off dead for good this time. But uh, I, you know, Mick might not want those jobs, but call me uh, Paramount, <laughs> New Line and Blumhouse. I, uh, I will gladly take those jobs. Uh, but if I had to rank them, it would go uh, Michael, Jason, Freddy. I, I, for some reason, I do like the suspense elements of the the Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth entries a lot. Um, you know, I think I think uh, more so than the the kind of blend of humor. Though the Nightmare, you know, I still think Wes Craven's second Nightmare movie, uh, New Nightmare, is is so inventive and so fun and so proto Scream. And three and four are terrific. New yeah, Nightmare, that's true. New Nightmare was number five. Yes. Three and four were both really imaginative, very talented directors. You know, Frank Darabont wrote uh, number three. Uh, yep. Rennie Harwin directed number four. Yep. Yeah, and, three and four are fun. Those are those are really solid sequels. Yeah, um, they're really interesting. They did something new. But right now, I don't know what you could do to inject life into these franchises that would make it fresh, that would not just feel like you're forcing the issue to try and keep dragging that dead horse until it stands <laughs> up again. There was a, a moment when the Weinstein company still had uh, the rights to Halloween. And I mean, you, you remember, because we were we had a brief conversations with them about Nightmare Cinema back then. Yeah. Um, and uh, right before they, they the rights reverted back to the Akkads and then they took them to Blumhouse, um, there was a moment where they had shut down the third installment of the zombie era of Halloween movies. And I was talking to that exec that we had been talking to, and I pitched him a take for a Halloween movie. And uh, my my thought was um, to try and do like a little mashup of the different worlds. I thought it would be fun to bring in uh, Daniel Harris, who played Jamie Lloyd in the four, five and six. Right. Uh, take or four and five i should say take her and take josh hartnett and have a little family reunion where jamie lee curtis's character has passed away laurie strode has passed away and the, and the two estranged children come back to haddonfield for her funeral and 
Uncle Mikey shows up. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> David Gordon was... Green and Jason Blum, are you listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a call. Uh, <laughs> we can <laughs> reboot Joe. it again. Yeah, no, Joe, was, uh, the, the other they, Joe Russo. Yeah. The, he really liked that take, and but unfortunately, the uh, the rights reverted before there was like any real movement on it. But uh, that was always kind of my 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 initial knee jerk into uh, how to do another Halloween movie. But uh, yeah, anyway, there's one way. There's one way. There's always so, another. And uh, I, I think we've worn this one out. <laughs> hopefully we'll never have to answer that question again until like, <laughs> you know, six months from now. Uh, Tanya wants to know, has there ever been a moment in your production career that scared you? Every time I start a new show, uh, I start it with fear, out of fear. Um, and I think that's really healthy. Because if you go in thinking you've got everything solved, you've got all the answers uh, from the very beginning, yeah. then you're, you're going to do some hack work. Yeah, uh, I want to be cowed by the challenges that are presented to me because I respond much better thinking I'm going to fuck something up and <laughs> going in in a defensive mode where all the cylinders are, are running and that I'm open to the ideas and, and challenges of making this fresh and new and scary and frightening. Yeah. So if you mean that kind of fear, as opposed to storytelling fear uh, and, and devising ideas to instill fearful scenes into a movie or a television show or a book or something, that's entirely different. But yeah, I, I do approach every single project um, with just a little bit of a healthy free song. I think that's really smart. I also think like, um, you know, I'll never forget when we were interviewing uh, assistant directors for the Au Pair Nightmare. Uh, you know, there was kind of a young up and coming guy, you know, getting his DGA days in. And then there was uh, a an established New Mexico guy who's been around the block forever and da, 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 da. And, you know, we had, we had a pretty complicated climax with like a little kid and stunts and, you know, uh, pool work and, and, you know, the established guy was like, oh, yeah, that's nothing. It's easy. Bah, 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 bah. And nothing terrified me more than hearing his, yeah. his, his overconfidence, because all I could think about was how wrong everything could go. Whereas the, the assistant director we ended up hiring, Artie Carlson, uh, he was all about safety and like making sure we'd like, you know, prepared and, and blocked out enough time. And I was like, oh, this is this is great, you know? Well, you really want somebody to feel like they have something to prove. Yeah. And and that goes from the top to the bottom, whether you're yeah. an actor or craft services or a director or a producer, you know, you want to feel like it's your first time and you're giving it your very best shot. You know how. Yeah. Yeah. And, and no surprise, Artie's gone on to big things. He's doing all, he's, he's the assistant director on all the Taylor Sheridan TV shows. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's, it was nice to see that, that I made the right choice. Uh, but yeah, did indeed. I think, That's I think a, a, a healthy dose of um, fear goes a long way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, specifically, it, though, I mean, you, you've had some, some uh, things happen on, on your shows, like the, the theater that caught fire. I mean, that must have been a yeah. terrifying experience too. well certainly there have been there have been accidents like that that was uh, on desperation where they a a lamp burst into into flames during a false cave cave-in sequence 
in a set cave where a bunch of walnut dust that was being used instead of dirt because diatomaceous earth is not allowed to be used in films anymore because, with good reason because it causes cancer. <laughs> so uh, the safe alternative was to use walnut dust. Well, walnut dust is wood and it burst into flames and ignited this entire set, which was made out of fiberglass and, and all. It was really awful and people were hurt and you know, every time uh, a stunt is being coordinated, no matter how safe it is, it's still a stunt. And there's a stunt director um, or a stunt person doing it because they specialize in defying the odds of their danger taking place. Yeah. But I'm still always terrified and really need to know that everything is going to go great. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we were dropping people off of roofs in uh, Nightmare Cinema. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Leopardi, our producer, said something similar to me. She's like, every time I do something like this, it never gets easier. You know, no, like it's it's still terrifying every time. Um, but, uh, all right. Next question. Chris wants to know which existing non-horror film do you think could be remade as a scary movie? Well, first of all, anyone who listens to this show knows that I'm not really that interested in things being remade. I'm much more excited in things being fresh and original and new. Yeah. Um, secondly, I wouldn't even know where to start with <laughs> choosing a non-genre film and turning it into a horror movie. I, I know we've got Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, uh, <laughs> That's is right. maybe one idea, but... Um, he wants to uh, he wants to do a whole universe where he takes other beloved characters, I think, as they come into the public domain and keep making horror movies out of them. Uh, so. <laughs> well, there's there's some conceptual thinking that I would never have come up with. That's right. Uh, you know, I I love an original idea and I love somebody taking an idea and dragging it to hell for yeah. entertainment. But I, I don't really know how to answer that because I can't think of a of a non-genre story that I'd rather tell in a horrific way. But Joe, I'll bet you have some ideas. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, a little while ago, the producer of Mortal Kombat came to us and said, I have this idea, you know, I want to do. And I, I read it and I was like, ah, you know, this is, this is just a creepy kid movie. And like, there's been so many creepy kid movies and like, I don't really know how to do anything different with this. And then I thought about, a fake trailer I saw a long time ago where they took a beloved Christmas movie and recut it as a horror movie. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was the movie's elf the movies elf, uh, uh, which is, you know, if you know the plot of elf, it's about a uh, elf who discovers that his, you know, long lost father is living in New York city and he travels from the North pole to go meet him. But I think if you flip the perspective uh, to James Kahn's character, <laughs> and you have this son you never knew you had show up in your life and wreak havoc. Suddenly it's a horror movie, right? Uh, the elf on a shelf. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, we, we, we stripped the, the Christmas ideas out of that, but took, took kind of the, that conceit of, um, you know, what if you had a son that you didn't know about come crashing into your life and turn it upside down? And, and what if you brought something supernatural along with him? Um, and, and that was kind of our way into a project that, you know, 
that producer's uh, trying to get cast attached to it right now. You know, that's so, great. Well, good yeah. luck with that. Thank you. So, yeah, there so, you go. So, There's a good example of a non-horror idea turned into one. All right. John wants to know, how did you end up writing for the magical world of Disney? And are you a Disney fan yourself? Um, at present, uh, they're not my favorite people, but uh, <laughs> but there are a lot of reasons for that. But uh, when I was a kid growing up, I, I watched the wonderful world of Disney every week. I mean, every Sunday night it was on. It was terrific. I loved it. I wanted to be a, an animator. I wanted to make cartoons. So I was a huge fan of Disney, but even more so Warner Brothers. Um, but that came about because I was writing for Steven Spielberg on Amazing Stories. Jeffrey Katzenberg was running Disney at the time, and he called me in for a general meeting. And they wanted to put me under contract because I'd proven myself as a writer for Steven Spielberg. I was getting offers from a lot of studios, and they wanted me to be an exclusive writer with them. And Jeffrey said to me, um, I would like you to direct an episode, write and direct an episode of our Disney Sunday movie. But would you mind, you know, um, John Landis was walking down the hallway at this at this moment. I was having the meeting with, with Katzenberg. Katzenberg ran out into the hallway, came back a few minutes later and said, I just talked to John and asked him if he would executive produce um, you doing an episode of our Disney Sunday movie. John and I have been friends for years. And John really believed in me and was really helpful uh, at an early time in my career when I needed it most. And so John said, oh yeah, Mick's a great director. I'd never directed anything before. <laughs> he, he'll do a great job. But he also said to me, you're gonna get this job and don't you fuck it up because I don't wanna have to replace you. <laughs> but it was great. Oh my God. And, Can you imagine so, an alternate universe where John Landis had to step in and finish Fuzzbucket? Oh boy. <laughs> so it was an opportunity that, that Katzenberg extended to me because they wanted to put me under contract because I had proven myself writing uh, for Steven Spielberg and directing for Spielberg after I did Fuzzbucket for Disney. And I've told that story before that. Stephen said to me, if he'd seen Fuzzbuck at first, he may not have offered me the opportunity <laughs> to direct the second season Amazing Stories that I did. You know what? It all it all worked out. It uh, all worked out great. But it is a great example of your relationship as the Zelig of horror uh, <laughs> paying off um, into, into a, a real job, which is not great. that anybody knows who Zelig is anymore, but oh, it's, so, it's, be it. uh, <laughs> so be it. Uh, all right. Gary asks, when writing, do you sometimes travel to a location to put yourself in a similar, if not the exact location as the characters in your story to get a stronger feel of the environment or the character situation? Absolutely. When I can, you know, when I wrote um, Hocus Pocus, I went to, I, I went to Massachusetts and I went to Salem specifically to uh, investigate where the story was taking place. And I found out that it was even more magical and wondrous and stupendous than I ever would have thought of from my home in Los Angeles. Um, the ideas, the schools, the buildings, the shops, the um, tourist attractions, and just some of the historic buildings there and all are so filled with wonder that 
it's the perfect place for this movie to take place. So um, that was one. When I was getting ready to do Desperation, when it was going to be a feature before it turned into a TV movie, uh, I went up to Nevada and drove all around those areas that, that King had written about in the book. And that book was inspired by a motorcycle trip that King took from Maine. He, he was taking a cross-country trip, and he had asked me if I would go with him. Uh, and I'd not ridden motorcycles much, and <laughs> I don't know that it would have been the, the best idea for me to do a cross-country motorcycle trip, even with Stephen King. But that was, it ended up inspiring the novel of Desperation. And so I took that trip uh, on my own in my car just to, to, to see what it felt like. And if I can investigate a location, if the story is very specific to a location, I absolutely will. The, uh, you also, your novel, Salome, uh, had you been there before you wrote it or was that a, because I know you've kind of passed through it here and there. Yeah, um, my parents for a while lived in Arizona, uh, in, outside of Prescott, Arizona. And so going on a drive, right after you pass through the California-Arizona border and start heading north, there's this little fly speck of a town called Salome. Yep. And I had been there two or three times. I would stop at the, uh, the coffee shop that's described in the book is very much the way it was with a bar right next door and this horseshoe uh, counter where you order your blueberry pie in particular, and the place was <laughs> famous for it. Um, and it really contributed to the invention of that story that became my second novel. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that bleeds into our next question, which is uh, JR from Sevilla writes, something that I always love to notice is the little details that give a character personality or help the audience know what kind of person they are. It might be their taste in music, the kind of car they drive, or how they decorate their house. Have you ever given a character that kind of little extra something? Always. Um, you know, whether it's making a character a musician, what they play, the kind of music they play, like the question asked, um, where they live, uh, what kind of relationship they have, what their sexual orientation is, what their their relationships with people are like, um, uh, just how they interact with one another. Because there is that big test of if you just trade character names in a script, will there be any difference? Was it Paul Tremblay that talked about that or? Yeah, yeah, he yeah. did actually, yep. Yeah, but it's it's a really great test. Each of your characters needs to stand on his or her own with a personality that is true to him or her yep. or they. Yes. Uh, and, and it's really important that each of them has a, a veracity and feels like they they were born before the movie began and they die after the movie ends, way yep. after, hopefully, uh, unless they die in the movie. But um, that's always defined by what they wear, what they say, where they live, what their home is like, what they drive, what the music they play. Uh, do they draw? Uh, uh, often I like to, to tell stories about creative people because I think that opens them to supernatural events and ghost stories and things like that. So a lot of the characters in in my stories are either 
writers or their filmmakers or their artists or their musicians or something like that. Yeah. I think it's just an additional door to open that helps them step into an otherworldly world. I think, uh, and that's honestly how you shape, you know, the the world and the point of view. And and I think the more granular you can make a character, the more relatable they become. Yeah. You know? And when I'm writing, I start with characters, not with story. There'll right. be an idea, but it's the people who engender uh, the, the motion of your story, where it's going. And um, that has been the way that's worked for me, rather than trying to plot out a, a jigsaw puzzle of a plot first. Yep. Yep. It's, it, there's, there's two ways to go at it. And that is certainly uh, a more organic one sometimes. Uh, well, Randall writes kind of on the same vein. Uh, you just had writer Paul Tremblay on the show. Hey, oh, uh, <laughs> and we're speaking about reconciling the movie adaptation process with the written word. Nick commented that he read the story and uh, the story being Cabin at the End of the World, which became the book, Dr. Yeah. Cabin. Uh, and once he found out that Dave Batista was cast, he thought, whoa, they nailed it. My question is for both of you. Do you have a hard time separating the actor from the character as you read a story? Do you find it difficult to imagine your own version of a character after you know who is playing that character? Well, it comes in the other order. The story uh, comes first, whether it's a book or a screenplay or whatever. I never, ever write with an actor in mind. Um, first of all, you're, the likelihood of your getting that actor is so great yeah. that it is sheer folly. And secondly, you're limiting yourself in who that character can be. Uh, every, and we talk about this on the show a lot too, but every writer is also each of those characters. It's a facet. It may be a tiny, tiny facet that is built up fictionally all the way around, but each of them comes from the same soul, the same writer and the same imagination the challenge that every good writer has to be up to is creating characters who are specific from one another and stand on their own and are not the same, don't sound the same, don't act the same, don't react the same under all circumstances. So um, yeah, all of the, uh, those things come from character first and actor second. But if you have an actor who has portrayed a role really beautifully, you can never unsee them in it. You know, if, if you read a book, whether it's The Stand or, or Desperation or uh, Cabin at the End of the World, you know, you have in your head who those characters are, maybe not what they look like, maybe what they look like, maybe you've filled in with actors on your own. But by the time you see a movie adaptation of it, it's very hard to flush that away and imagine anything but David Bautista in that role, you know. And he was pretty perfect in it, I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I read that he was playing that part, I thought there is nobody more suited for that. And I just read an interview with Tremblay in the LA Times this morning where he talked about how surprising it was to see these actors like Bautista and the little girl and the married couple, um, how surprising they were. And to me, they fit what i read in the book perfectly yeah yeah i agree i agree i uh and and to your note about um 
you know, how casting can shift and change and such. When I was hired on that movie, The Locksmith, as, as the, the, the third of, of now four writers, uh, Emil Hirsch was attached to it. Uh-huh. And uh, and now it stars Ryan Phillippe. So, yep. you know, you really, you really, even when you have an actor attached, you might not have that actor forever uh, is, is, is a, a great way to, I think, think about it. But uh, yeah, it's a crapshoot. A little bit. Yeah. But, but I'm curious specifically because um, you reimagined a movie that had been previously adapted with a very significant star <laughs> at the center uh how did you in your brain push jack nicholson out so you could focus on you know this new version of the shining by rereading the book yeah you know the the book is is a very different animal the plot structure is not that different yeah. but the emotional approach is 180 degrees from totally. what king had done and so as we've talked about before Nicholson starts out crazy and goes crazier. Yeah. The idea, and and it's great for the Kubrick film. Sure. But, but the idea of King's novel was to see an everyman put under a pressure cooker that drove him to a, a place he would never have gone otherwise with the help of the supernatural. So taking somebody, in our case, it was Stephen Weber, who you you think of him as this funny likable guy you've seen on tv and wings or whatever yeah. and then run him through the grinder yeah and the king grinder and and put that that water heater you know inside his head yeah basically explodes you know the boiler not the water heater right right but you know to see that happening that's that was the point of that book. And that's what we were illustrating. We, we chose a different approach from what the great Stanley Kubrick did with his film. Yeah. So the, uh, the way to rinse that from your mind when you're starting a new approach is go back to the source. And we went back to the book and I reread it and I was reminded of all these things that were not depicted in the Kubrick version that we had the opportunity to do including having a script written by the author himself. I think that's, I think that's, it's, it's so smart and it's so much more fitting of, of the story of the novel too, having reread that over the pandemic. Um, it, it really is kind of uh, starkly different from an emotional standpoint. Um, it is. And Kubrick made the movie he wanted to make and it yeah, was a huge absolutely. success yeah. and it's yep. iconic and it lives to this day. Yeah. You know, when people, talk about a movie version of the stand they don't talk about our miniseries they talk about the kubrick film yeah and, uh, you the know shi- the shining. May, uh, sorry the shining yes and people talk about your the stand though. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough but uh you know they talk about the kubrick film because it hit a nerve and and it's something that has remained iconic and and more power to it and we we told another version for another medium and exactly. uh and and I am very happy with with how that turned out. As as you should be. Um, Thank you. Okay. So speaking of things that you have made, uh, <laughs> this month it's the 25th anniversary of one of your uh, TV movies, Virtual Obsession. 
the probably the least seen of my TV movie. <laughs> I was uh, I was scouring the internet, kind of uh, looking for anniversary movie ideas to to cover on the podcast, and I was like, oh oh, this is good. This is good fodder to talk to Nick about. Uh, so we've it's- we've talked about um, virtual obsession once or twice on on AMAs in the past, but felt like a good time to to bring it up again and and uh uh did you even realize it turned 25 did it kind of pass us i did the not night? <laughs> i did not but you know i i really like that little movie it, it, it is a good movie it's based on a book by peter james called host and yes. that was the title we shot it under yeah and it's Lots a really good science host. fiction book yeah this yeah. was the first <laughs> yeah. yeah but it never came out that way right uh, maybe in i think in the uk they may have retitled it host because the book was a best it is still on imdb listed as host which is interesting interesting uh, yeah but uh you know we had peter gallagher we had mimi rogers we had little yeah. jake lloyd his first right. movie after being in star wars as 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 little anakin skywalker that's right you didn't cast him off that you cast him off his performance in jingle all the way there you go (laughs) but it's got a really clever science fiction idea uh peter gallagher is terrific yeah an ai professor a university professor who falls in love with a student he's married to mimi rogers but he falls in love with a brilliant student who is going to die from a brain aneurysm at any moment. So the plot is that he downloads her brain so that when the time comes, if he can clone her, then he can fulfill the woman that he fell in love with whom he lost. So it's this romantic triangle. It's got this wonderful science fiction element that is, it was very much right before its time. Yep. Um, so it was it was prescient to what was going to happen soon. And, uh, you know, it it had the terrible title of virtual obsession that they changed it two weeks before it aired on ABC. Uh, so it's saying, let's see, virtual uh, technical, make yeah. sure none, none of the women watch it at that time <laughs> and and obsession uh romance hallmark channel make yeah. sure none of the men watching it that this was the thinking at that. they canceled each other out you know nobody had any idea of what it was it was such an obscure title um that they didn't realize it was a basically a science fiction um love triangle gone wrong yeah. bridget wilson kind world. of bridget wilson uh plays kind of the the digital femme fatale so to speak right uh, and right. she's she's great in the picture too. And something very very horrible happens to her head. That yes. uh, I will. And I have the head see. in my office. Oh, that's great. That's uh, so, no, my, you yeah. show that to me next time. I don't think I've actually seen it in person. Yeah, it's uh, on top of the pinball machine. I would love to see Bridget Wilson's <laughs> head. Uh, <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, but, uh, and, but and I, it was there were some really interesting things that happened because she exists as a hologram but she can't be touched. And so there's this incredibly romantic scene that was not in the book that was something of my creation. And the script, by the way, was written by myself and Preston Sturgis Jr., the son of one of the greatest filmmakers. Wow, that's, I was gonna ask who, uh, so, so, how did that come about? Had he already written the adaptation and you came on or how did no, you know? I, I brought him on. I brought him on because I'd read stuff that he had done. There was a script he'd done 
um, called Dislocator, something like that, that I was attached to for a while that never got made. And I love his work. He's a really talented guy. And I brought him in to do it because I didn't have time to do it myself. Right. Um, we work closely with Peter James, the British author of the book. And um, but this this one scene, this romantic scene where Peter Gallagher and Bridget Wilson are together, she is a hologram and they're passionately in love, but they can't touch. Right. They can almost touch and he can put his arms around her image, but he can't hold on to her. And it's yeah. I found it really moving. And, you know, it was something I'd never seen before in a movie. And it was it's something most people have not seen because nobody's seen this movie. <laughs> Well, I saw it, Mick, and I would encourage our uh, our listeners to go go seek it out. Uh, last last I saw it, it was streaming on Amazon. I don't know if it's still there or not. Yeah, but, I think uh, it. I think it was last time I looked, but it's it's been a while since I've seen. Yeah. it. But well, thank you, Joe. Good, I appreciate you bringing it up. You're welcome. It's a, and it's a good excuse. Happy 25th anniversary to Virtual Obsession. So. Yay! Yay! All right. Well, Mick, that wraps up another Ask Mick Anything. Um, well, thank you, Joe. And uh, thanks to everyone out there for your questions and for listening. And Joe, let them know how they can ask me anything. You can send your questions to our email, askmickanything at gmail.com, or you can send them to us on the social medias. Uh, mix on the Twitters and the Instagrams at Mick Garris PM. And you can find me at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham, respectively. All right, Joe. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.